0: Expanding your food business and pivoting your business model through COVID is both terrifying and exhilarating. We talked to Krista Cotton of El Guapo about her journey. It's on Tip of the Tongue. The Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Krista Cotton, CEO of El Guapo, a cocktail company that manufactures everything but the booze. Welcome, Krista. Thank you for having me. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey as to how you got here? Sure. So
1: I grew up in a very small town in southwest Georgia. It's called Leesburg, population 2600. But I do come from a very entrepreneurial family. And when I was five years old, my father started a commercial real estate portfolio with one shopping center. And his goal was to have five and 10 and 20 And by the time I graduated from high school, he had 7.5 million square feet of commercial real estate that was all grocery anchored. And it is now one of the largest privately held commercial real estate portfolios in the Southeast. So I always looked up to him. I got the entrepreneurial bug early. My parents always gave me a lot of responsibility uh, from a very early age working at that company in the summers and at trade conventions all across the U.S. And I always knew that I wanted to be
0: just like my dad when I grew up. So when you say at a very early age, how early was that?
1: I think I started doing random jobs for my dad in middle school and then... Oh, wow. That is early. Yeah. Yes. So I... I wanted to go to Tulane for school, but I ended up going to Auburn University in Alabama because it was about 45 minutes away from the real estate headquarters, and I knew that it would allow me to work for the family business but also be at school at the same time, and I really thought at that time that I wanted to join the family business, so I did that. It ended up being a Kismet decision because Hurricane Katrina hit my freshman year. So,
0: oh, so you weren't here in New Orleans? I
1: wasn't, but I ended up spending several, like, several weekends, but I would say the majority of my weekends here in New Orleans, helping my family recover from the storm. A lot of the Rouse's grocery stores around town and a lot of the grocery stores up and down Veterans Boulevard and Williams Boulevard and some on the West Bank as well were owned by my family. So a lot of these shopping centers didn't have power for weeks and in some cases months. um, And all of the the refrigeration and freezing mechanisms and systems needed to be completely replaced. And that was a very dirty job, but it did make me very passionate about new Orleans and it, it only underscored my interest in entrepreneurship. So right as new Orleans was getting back on its feet, the credit crunch happened in 2007, 2008 and my dad decided that as a family, we really needed to diversify because we'd had so many issues with insurance claims as everyone did after the storm with, you know, Various properties not being covered because of wind damage and, you know, all the different games. Whatever
0: whatever exception they could find. Exactly. Yes. And
1: it, it was a very stressful time for my family, honestly, and he really did want to diversify. So he saw an article in the Wall Street Journal About a craft distiller named Seth Fox. He's in Atchison, Kansas, and he was one of the first craft distillers in America. And he said, you know, I think I'm going to open a distillery. And everyone in our our friend circle and social circle said, oh, it's a midlife crisis. He's not really going to do this. But he drove himself to Kansas and hired Seth as a consultant. And I spent my last two years at Auburn helping my parents open Georgia's first legal distillery. We like to make that distinction because, of course, there are bootleggers and moonshiners all over. But we had the first... license and did build the first distillery. So I got a front row seat to entrepreneurship from start to finish with that project and I loved it. And what what company was that? That is 13th Colony Distilleries. They make Southern rye whiskey, um, sour mash. They have a vodka and a gin. My brother Max still runs it to this day. But once I graduated from Auburn in 2010, Tim Cook actually did our commencement speech and I got in my U-Haul and I drove here to New Orleans. I've always wanted to be here and it was important to me that I do so. So I got a job at a branding agency here in town and I was very interested in learning more about market strategy, research and branding. So I went on that journey and worked for a local New Orleans company for about 5 years, I think, 4 or 5 years and I loved it. My main client was the Louisiana Office of Tourism, so I filmed all of the tourism commercials that ran on TV and radio and on the internet for the state, and the lieutenant governor was in charge of that, but I was the account executive on the advertising side that ran all of those projects, and I really did love that job, but I got to know a lot of the chefs and high-end hotel accounts around town, and I really just knew that I wanted to somehow merge what I was doing for the family business and what I had learned on the marketing and advertising side of things. So one of my last projects on that job was actually Top Chef Season 11. The state underwrote the advertising fee to be able to film that here in New Orleans and the state marketing and tourism budget paid for it. And they were very concerned that since state taxpayer money paid for the show, they didn't want it to become a show about New Orleans. They really wanted it to be equitably shot all around the state. And they wanted to make sure that the locations and the judges that represented um, the state of Louisiana uh, really came through and it didn't just become a show about New Orleans. So my job was to plan the challenges and do a lot of the location scouting. and, And it was it was really exciting But a lot of the chefs that I met on that show were really the first chefs to give us credibility and put us behind the bar when I started El Guapo. And those are a lot of the relationships that I still hold dear and have really been able to make El Guapo what it has become over the last four and a half years. So once I finished that project, the original uh, founder for El Guapo was selling the trademark. There were a lot of issues with the brand, and he approached me about buying it. And at first I said, you know, I'm really busy, and I'm not so sure, but I gave the P&Ls and all the financial information to my parents just to sort of talk it over. I thought it was interesting, and my dad said, if you don't do this, I'm going to, and that's really the push that I needed (laughs) to start on my own journey, so that was four and a half years ago. I closed it. I I bought the trademark and started my own LLC, which is an important distinction. I did start my own company and founded my own thing, and we just have the El Guapo trademark as a part of a larger company. But that was in July of 2017, and here we are four and a half years later. We are now in 49 states and three countries, and the original distiller that my father saw in the Wall Street Journal is actually building my new brewery in Mid-City. So how's that for a full circle That really experience? is a full
0: circle. So are you still using the same recipes? Did you get no. the recipes as part of the... So
1: there were some recipes, but there were a lot of issues with the food science and um Honestly, everything had to be completely redone. So I guess you could say I own the original recipes, but everything that is currently a part of the line is my original work. So there are a lot of testing, like FDA things with pH and just different things that weren't weren't done properly that we have invested the time and the resources to make correct. So we built our supply chain from the ground up. All of our suppliers are people that we have met and put together, and we've sort of approached our company with a different lens of how to do business. So instead of using a grain-neutral spirit and then macerating low-quality spices to make a bitter's Or instead of buying and blending extracts from flavoring houses, we built our relationships with our actual farmers and then with single-origin spice importers that are bringing in very high-quality spices into the country. Mm -hmm. And we use a non-GMO vegetable-based glycerin as the stabilizing agent for our bitters, and we make non-alcoholic 0.0 ABV bitters, which is very different from the vast majority of what is out there on the market. So our products are very high
0: end. So that also means that you can sell your bitters without having an alcohol license. Exactly. So
1: one of the things I learned from the distillery is that distribution is critical, but it can be very difficult with the three-tiered system with no vertical integration. Interestingly, we choose to work with liquor distributors because they make more margin on our products because they're not paying excise tax to the federal government through the TTB. So they make more margin and they have the relationships with the beverage buyers at hotels and restaurants and with the beverage department at high-end grocery stores around the country so it works out better for us but we also have the ability to self-distribute which is how certain deals like uh, two weeks ago we just launched our first national partnership with world market so now three of our mixers are available At all 258 world market locations around the country, Mm. and that was a direct deal. So no distributors, all eight pallets shipped from our brand new warehouse in Mid-City, and we have additional partnerships like that that we'll be announcing later in
0: 2022. So... You say that you manufacture everything but the booze. Correct. So what else besides bitters?
1: So it started with bitters, obviously. We've sort of dropped the—it used to be El Guapo bitters. Now we're just El Guapo. It gets confusing for people. We then branched out into syrups, which has been really fun. Uh, We try to use as many local ingredients as possible. We do a lot of limited-edition products and um, projects with local farmers. So we have a sweet potato syrup that uses Louisiana sweet potatoes. It's very nice. My uncle actually grows pecans on a family farm for us, and we won an award for Made in the South by Garden and Gun for our Creole Orgeat. It's made with pecans instead of the traditional almonds, which Uh is very good. And then our most recent project is a Cajun grenadine, which we make with all native Louisiana strawberries. And we had it certified Cajun from the Louisiana Department of Agriculture. And that one is so popular, we have a hard time keeping it on the shelf because we only use Louisiana strawberries, which means we only produce it for three months a year. So we make as much as we possibly can, but when it's gone, it's gone. Um, And then we've done other limited edition projects and we are always researching and trying new recipes, but we've done a Satsuma syrup. We've experimented with Satsuma bitters. It just sort of depends on what we have going. And then right before COVID hit, we launched our mixers line, which we did as a special project for Costco actually. And the plan was for us to go into all of our Costco stores regionally. So it was 24 stores every store in Texas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana. And we passed all of our test implementations. It was a supplier diversity deal because we're 100% woman-owned and we have our woman-owned business certification. And right after we passed our test implementations here in New Orleans for holiday, like Thanksgiving and Christmas weekends of 2019 – We were going into all of the stores in Texas. We had purchased our plane tickets, and we were ready to go. And our buyer called us on March 8th and said, I am so sorry to do this to you, but we're pulling all of your pallet spaces because we need that space to stock additional toilet paper. And we thought she was kidding. Um, But we quickly found out she was not, and we had already manufactured all that inventory. So... Our business model completely shifted. We've lost our two primary sources of revenue in a week because of the Costco deal um, being temporarily delayed. And then all of our independent bar and restaurant partners around the country closing. Mm -hmm. So um, we quickly realized that our website traffic was up more than tenfold because everybody was searching for recipes online. All these stressed out parents were at home. Me being one of them, my my daughter was one and Little Gate at McGee was canceled, so I'm at home with her and realizing that the way business is happening is shifting. So our business changed from seventy percent wholesale and distribution to ninety two percent direct to consumer through our website and Amazon. And you could do that because you were yeah. not alcohol based. Correct. Mm-hmm. So we figured out uh, retail shipping and we already had some of that in place because we, 30% of our business was doing the, doing it this way before, but it was a huge seismic shift in operations, but we figured it out. Our team was fantastic through the entire experience, but we ultimately tripled our revenue in 2020. And that's really what set us on this journey. The Mixers line and the Costco deal that fell through because of the toilet paper ended up at Christmas, or I guess really it was Thanksgiving of 20. Twenty, I was so frustrated because there had just been so much that had happened. I applied to the Idea Village just on a whim because I needed help and more education. And that is really what led us to meet some of the best mentors that have been a part of our company. And I I went through the Idea Village program last year, which is how I met Corey Tisdale, the founder of Barbecue Guys in Baton Rouge, who's been tremendously helpful to me since since we first met him but ultimately going through Idea Village connected us with enough people to do a a series I'm sorry connected us with enough people to be confident in doing a fundraising round so we just closed our seed series and we raised almost 1.2 million dollars to build America's first bitters brewery in Mid City because most most bitters are distilled but we're actually brewing and it's a non-alcoholic brewing process so we're very excited about our new facility that we're building in Mid City. Sounds very very exciting. You're just Thank on you. a roller
0: coaster.
1: It is a lot especially with a 3-year-old but I always say I'm a mom first and an entrepreneur second but I really wake up and love what I do every day. I'm blessed to have the best team out there and I just I love living in New Orleans. I love the culture, I love the people, I love my team, I love being involved in my community and I really feel like I wake up every day doing what I'm born to do. So I I just I'm a happy person. I think that
0: sounds I'm, like a great a great feeling.
1: Yes. So it, I mean it is very hard and it's a lot of hard work, but it's very rewarding and now You know, honestly, some of my best days are the days when I get to participate in mentoring for younger entrepreneurs that are now coming up and have their own ideas and are just getting started. And it really is an ecosystem. And I just always try to give back more than I take um, because it's a hamster wheel and everyone's on
0: it. Sounds really, really exciting. So tell me something. Tell me about your website do you have obviously if you have syrups and things you're going to have recipes but yes are you developing recipes that are food recipes as well as drink recipes
1: we do so we have a website it's just el and then there's a blog on there so if you click on recipes it'll take you to our blog and we started with just photography we're starting to implement some video recipes as well the vast majority of them are cocktails, which are alcoholic and non alcoholic. We're very careful to have options for everyone, but we do also have food recipes. We're one of the only bitters companies to manufacture savory bitters. So if you're in the airport or at some of our accounts around town, you'll see crawfish boil bitters or gumbo bitters, very popular. But we use those as an accompaniment to raw oysters. It's very good. Mm-hmm. People use them in tomato soup to just give it a better depth of flavor than you're sort just... Sort of
0: an um- umami kick. Yes,
1: just a little bit. Just if you want to make your Campbell's tomato soup a bit more special, you can add <laughs> some crawfish boil bitters. But it's also really great just to add a tablespoon to pimento cheese or, you know, put it on cheese toast there's all different ways to use them and we and we have you know we've done just different shrimp dishes with the gumbo bitters and we try to be really creative with the recipes that we put out there and some of our best ideas honestly have come from our customers. One of the things I sort of figured out on my own that I love is adding a tablespoon of the chicory pecan bitters. They're made with congregation coffee and then pecans that my uncle grows, but I put a tablespoon of that in heavy whipping cream at the holidays and then make my own whipped cream. I call it scented whipped cream. But if you put that on hot chocolate for your child or even on top of, you know, your holiday cake or pie, it's so, so good. And I get the most compliments out of that recipe than anything else that we make.
0: So can I give you an example of something I've made with your bitters? Oh my gosh, yes, please. So I take the same um, pecan bitters Uh and I use that to flavor brownies.
1: Oh yeah. So
0: I cut back on the vanilla that you just traditionally put into brownies. And so I just put in maybe an eighth of a teaspoon, although I actually think you could just eliminate that. Right. And and I use the full amount of extract, but in in the form of bitters in instead, bitters instead, instead of, of vanilla. Nice. And then I put chopped pecans into the brownies. And that very slight bitterness that's in there Gives a real kick to the chocolate, and well, it sounds like I need to be coming to your house. <laughs> and the smell in oh, the sure. oven is just unbelievable. So I think I would recommend not just a tablespoon into whipped cream or whatever, which I I do think that makes sense to do. So I'm not saying that's not a good thing, but that that you could really cook with them right. in a way that I I think. Um, people aren't really thinking of, and I'd be happy to talk to you about that.
1: I would love that. We've done, in COVID, I mean, everyone was baking, right? So we did try to do some, like, fun baking recipes with bitters, but admittedly with my three-year-old, I don't get as much time in the kitchen as I used to, but I would love to try your brownie recipe.
0: It really, really is is delicious, and just the idea of having your chopped pecans and that flavor actually be in the brownie, Um, It's just really good. I love that. I think that sounds great. Another thing I do is I use the gumbo bitters in my duck gumbo. Yep. That really, really is a great enhancer also, I think. Amazing. I do love a good gumbo. Now I'm hungry. (laughs) So what is on the horizon that you can talk about? I realize that if things are in development, you may not be able to say, but there's got to be some kind of tease you can give us. So,
1: you know, it's so interesting going through this
0: process. I tend to keep
1: my head down and uh, just really focus on what our team is is doing, but there's been so much press recently, uh, and I'm so grateful for it, but the Times-Picayune article on the front page, the Forbes articles, there was another one that came out yesterday, Biz New Orleans has been incremental in our success, but so many people have sort of connected the dots and figured out the family relationships of, you know, my parents and those things that weren't necessarily so public before. And so many amazing people have reached out to us. One company in particular is a local architect here in town, and they were the original architects for Bell South and AT&T in the building that we just moved into. And it has been so amazing just the connections and people that have gotten our email addresses and reached out with various things. But like, for example, this architecture firm, they have the original linen drawings from like the thirties and forties of the building. And we actually hired them as our architects to help us as we go through this build out process. But we never, even with research probably would have found this company, but they found us because they read some of the press about us. So there've been some really cool connections. So Angela and who would
0: know the building better than they?
1: Exactly. So Angela, if you're listening, thank <laughs> you for reaching out. Um, but there are, you know, really interesting things like that that make me just so excited to be a part of the new Orleans community because it just feels so special that people listen to your story and care about it, but they also have some connection and make some effort to connect the dots for you mm-hmm. in ways that are just so cool. So the architecture thing has been one that it recently happened that I've personally enjoyed, but things that are on the horizon are obviously building out this building. I've never done this before. I've watched my parents do it multiple times, but it's a little daunting to do it for yourself the first time. So...
0: Are they helping? No. They're they're, they're just saying (laughs) it's it's your baby. Go with it. Well, so, you know, I think my
1: parents are my biggest cheerleaders, and they would love, love, love to help. But I honestly, I love my parents so much, but I want my Thanksgiving dinner to be Thanksgiving and not a board meeting is what I always say. So. They're my number one cheerleaders, and they're so, so excited for me, but they're not investors. Uh, I've never taken a penny from my family. It's all been what I've done on my own, which I'm very proud of. But no, they, they are cheerleaders only, which is great. Next projects are obviously building out this building and being able to manufacture at scale. We currently have a big issue with people buying them faster than we can make them. Mm -hmm. So our big goal for 2022 is to fix that issue, but we're also hiring, you know, we've, we added two people within the last six weeks and we are about to hire two more. So, you know, even just, 24 months ago, there were six people and only three of us were full time and I think we'll be at over 20 by the end of the year. So a lot of changes, uh, a a lot of good changes, but also building the operations and the processes to be able to support all of this growth is really important and hopefully taking a vacation at some point in the near future. I haven't done that in a while, so it'd be nice to be able to take a little break.
0: So are you planning to put a, a retail um, section in your building, maybe with a tour and tasting room? So
1: it's interesting because we get asked this question. This is probably the second most frequent question we get asked. Uh-huh. And I used to think every everybody's been to a brewery. Everybody's been to a distillery. It's not like that interesting people don't really want to see but people want to see it (laughs) so even just today and yesterday we were meeting with the architects and sort of talking about phase one and phase two of what this project should look like and phase one is truly just getting operational because we need the capacity to be able to support the demand and fix some of our supply chain issues so that's phase one and then once we have it open yes I think I'm going to go back on my word. I used to say, oh, we're not going to do that. Who cares? But I think we are. And we're trying to kind of figure out what that's like and what it should be and build an experience that our customers would be excited to see. And I think components of that are merchandise and a tour, but I also think it's things like cocktail classes and how do we have not-for-profits be able to use the space and what are the other ways that we can partner with people in our community to use our building not just for profit but also for good.
0: Well, we, of course, are very aware of all of the culinary and cocktail places, and the city, and for culinary tourism in general, that if we're all sort of together, you know, you get this uh, rising tide. Raise all ships. uh, Yes, exactly. I agree. I agree. And so the more we have, the more reason people might have to stay another day in New Orleans and all of that, especially if we can eventually, when we have enough, we can add some kind of a brochure that's basically a culinary... Brochure. Like a road, like a guide map, like a guide map, exactly that we all participate in. I think that would be a whole lot of fun.
1: I completely agree, and I, I mean, I guess I always thought that we would get there, but it's all happening so fast. And it, it, July will be five years, and I'm very proud. Most businesses fail within five years, so right. even to get to this point has been, you know, I, I think I said my heart I always knew it would be successful, but also you look back and you think, wow, oh my gosh, we did it, or we're doing it rather. It'll never be done. It'll never be done. I'm learning that. It's progress, not perfection. But I do think that a lot of the most surprising pieces are how interested our customers are. And we have a lot of repeat customers and they want to see the process and they want to meet the people who are making it. So we're kind of starting to put our heads together to figure out what that looks like. And it's probably not a realistic 2022 goal, but definitely for 2023.
0: Well, that's not so far away. That's true. That's true. So, yeah, and if you can get the supply chain, if you get the supply chain working for you, you can then attack the world supply chain problem. That's true. That's true. But
1: the supply chain, that's a whole separate podcast. You could get everybody in food and beverage in here talking about that. We could solve some problems together maybe.
0: Oh, and I think COVID has uncovered lots and lots. It's true. Especially, I mean, obviously, there are many different areas where the supply chain gets um, bottlenecked. But the food and beverage part of it is just amazing. And the the crazy part is that with all the perishables that are involved in, in food and drink, that... It's disastrous because True. some things are just lost. I'm, you know, they're not just delayed; they're, they're spoiled. They're spoiled, yes.
1: You're correct in that, and I feel blessed that we've been able to avoid a lot of the issues that some of our friends and competitors have experienced because we did build our supply chain from the ground up. So a lot of these farmers are people that we know there are not very many things that we're importing and can't have access to. So our issues are limited, but they're still painful. And, you know, I think this has been a big lesson for all food and beverage companies to look to sourcing. What can you do more regionally or locally and where can you buy from because some of these issues, unfortunately, are here to stay, at least for the medium term.
0: Well, and it gives you another reason to think locally. Correct. Um, You know, it's not just a fad because people are saying, oh, we're going to eat only locally because it's, you know, tastes better or whatever. I mean, there are other kinds of business reasons, too, why it's a smart idea. Correct.
1: And, yes, I think that the – regionalization and localization of supply chains and food chains is it's definitely not a trend it is here to stay right
0: so do you have some kind of redundancy built in so that if you lose power or something like that you'll be able to continue to operate So this was a really fun learning lesson in Hurricane Ida.
1: (laughs) So our previous building on Chapitulis, which Poppy took her, came to to visit and we did a podcast with her there. It was less than 3,000 square feet. And when we started growing exponentially, we started putting shipping containers in the backyard because we just needed the space to hold raw materials. And we didn't have anywhere to put it. And when Ida hit, we didn't have a generator and we lost all of the raw materials that were on hand that were fresh items because they spoil just like we were just talking about. And we lost a third of our roof. So the building was flooded in certain parts and, you know, it wasn't it wasn't my best week or month. It was terrible. But a lot of us were dealing with these issues. Sure. At that time, we started looking at our business plan because we were almost done with our fundraise and we realized we hadn't even budgeted to have a generator at the new location. And as you grow, you have more and more raw materials on hand. So in a way, Ida was almost a blessing for us because it gave us the opportunity to change our budget and change our plan as we were moving, to be able to have some of these stopgaps in place that we weren't necessarily thinking about before, which in my mind seems kind of silly because I did live through the Katrina experience. You would think I would have been thinking about that faster than I was, but at least it happened when we were still small enough to be able to change and modify our plan to compensate for that. So we Thankfully, the building we moved into is already wired for all of that. We just have to have the portable generator brought in. So, yes, especially during storm season, we'll have all of that at our new building, but it isn't something that we've had up until now.
0: Well, Krista, thanks so much for joining us today. This is a really exciting thing to learn about, and I wish you all the best. Well, thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.